God in the community of the people of God and just how precious it is to him to worship together, to, to come to things like this, to enter into the presence of God and to sing glory to God, to hear from the word of God. And so I was reading in Psalm 34 uh, and David writes this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, he's speaking to the people of God. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so see that you, this is why we sing. This is why we gather. This is why we come to praise the Lord, that his praises may be in our mouth and that we could exalt the Lord together. And so we're going to sing a song uh, called All the Poor and Powerless. And it speaks to this idea of, of it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you look like, how you speak, what you know, but we come together to sing hallelujah. We come to sing to our Lord. And you know, in Revelation, it says that even in heaven, what we will be doing as the people of God is singing to Jesus. And so we get a little taste of heaven when the people of God come together and sing. So let me pray for us, and then we are going to continue singing. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are so good to not just save us as individuals, but save us into a family to create a, a, not just a bunch of different random people, but to create a people, a, a community, a family, a group of people set apart for your glory. God, I pray that our hearts, that we wouldn't walk in here just as a normal Tuesday night, just a, another regular moment, but that we would actually know that the people of God are gathering this moment to sing to our King. We're singing to our Creator. We're singing to the One who deserves our praise. Would we recognize the moment would, would with David would we say oh would you magnify the Lord with me let, let us exalt him together not just alone not just individualistic but but together father we thank you for this Jesus you are alone worthy to be praised and as the people of God we now praise you now Lord we will cry out hallelujah praise be to God we will magnify your name we will make your name known um, in this building, in this city, and in this nation, and in this world, God. We will scream it from the mountains. We will tell it to the masses, Lord, that you are God. Lord, bless Austin as he comes and brings the word of God to us um, as he preaches and teaches us what you have to say to us. Lord, would you give him words of wisdom? Would you give us soft hearts? Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Actually, keep standing. I'm going to read the word of God real quick for us. Amen. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay, this is Colossians 3, 5 through 11. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impu- uh, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have, been, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You guys can be seated. It's a good text, right? 
Good. Well, hey, everyone. My name is, um, is Austin Edwards. I am on staff here at City Light, and I'm actually usually um, leading worship, playing guitar and singing, but tonight I get the privilege um, of actually communicating the beautiful truth of God's Word. So I like to tell Andrew um, that a sermon is only as good as the story you tell to start it. So I'm going to start out with a good story. Is that all right? That's actually not true, but I like to actually imagine that. So anyways, um, all right. So can I let you guys in on kind of one of my hidden talents? Is mine? I'm actually extremely precise with a machete. Now, um, if you know a little bit about, about me... Um, my, my wife and I met in South Africa three years ago on a mission trip, and uh, we actually um, got to, thank you, we got to go back for six months and, um, and actually minister there to people. She was there for a year. I came for the last six months. It was amazing. We got to um, feed and love orphan children and impoverished children. We got to teach life skills to young adults. Um, we got to just make gospel-centered friendships with um, the people there in South Africa. It's beautiful. Um, but when we were there, not all the time were we preaching the gospel necessarily in one-on-one discipleship, and so we did a lot of physical work. Now, on the property that we lived on, um, we had to um, do a lot of yard work and like cut down trees and stuff. And so you guys might not be like, that seems like really hard work. That's because you're from America. We have gas-powered saws. In South Africa, at least where we lived, um, we got handed a handsaw and like a machete. And we're like, and he pointed to a 30-foot tree and said, good luck. And so we're like, okay, I guess. Like, all right. So five days later, the tree falls down. I almost die because it hits me. It was insane. But I'm alive, which is great. But during this hard labor, I developed a certain skill with the machete. Now, one day as we were finishing up on our yard work, um, the two girls that were with us just got home from getting groceries, and they pointed, I think my wife Kristen, she's like, oh, there's a rat right there. So um, I think we picture rats in a certain way. African rats are not like little rats. They're like small cats, okay? And so we see this rat, and, um, and so anyways, it's kind of in between, like, uh, this table and this, like, old washing machine or whatever, and so... Um, uh, the rats had been getting into, like, the kids' food and stuff like that. And we're like, okay, this is not good. And so this thing was begging me to kill it, basically. So anyways, I grab my machete, and I think my heroic side kicks in. I'm like, I got to kill this thing, right? And so anyways, I grab my machete, and I kind of, like, lean my arm through because, like, there's a table's blocking. And I literally just kind of drop my arm on it and, like, hit the thing. It squeals, runs. I'm running after it. It jumps off a little curb thing. Boom, smash it, dead. I hit it in midair. I kill the rat. I have never felt so mainly in my life. It was a rat. I mean, most of you guys are like, dude, I killed a deer and then like ripped its guts out. I'm like, I killed a rat with a machete. I think that's pretty similar. Um, but um, you have to understand, uh, I look over and I see Kristen and Katie, these other two girls, and my buddy Ben, they're on the ground crying, laughing. They've never seen anything like that in their lives. They're like, what just happened? And um, so I, me, I'm kind of basking in my glory, right? Like kind of look, looking at the blade, you know? And uh, anyways, um, my wife yells out. She's like, is it dead yet? And um, I like look over and it's kind of like twitching a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well. And so I just kind of chopped it a couple more times, made sure it was dead. Um, it was dead, I think, the first time, just so you guys know. Um, can I just show a picture real quick? I think I got a picture up here. 
Okay, ah, oh, crap. The rat doesn't seem as big as it was, but I promise it looks bigger in person, okay? You can see it down there, and that's my machete. Okay, anyways, my title for my talk tonight is, Is It Dead Yet? Is It Dead Yet? So if you're a note writer, you can uh, take your notes in that. Now, um, the men in the room probably just um, gain a new respect for me. You're like, I like that guy. Like, I want to see if he's free for coffee this week. And the women in the room, some of you guys might have lost respect for me in that moment. I am sorry, um, but my warrior nature kicked in. Anyways, um, I truly believe that this, this, will, uh, this idea will help us understand what Paul is telling um, the church in Colossae and what he's telling us tonight. And so my big idea for tonight is that it takes work to kill your sinful pattern. And remember that you're clothed in Christ's perfections. Say it again. It takes work to kill your sinful patterns and remember that you are clothed in Christ's perfections. If you weren't here with us last week, um, Clay came in and taught on uh, Colossians uh, 3, 1 through 4. And the big idea from the text was, um, was that you are hidden in Christ. That if you are raised with Christ, if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then you're actually raised with him. Okay? So he's saying, if you're raised, don't focus on things that are below. Focus on things that are above. And I love in verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ. Um, so there's this, there's this beautiful picture that um, when you've accepted Jesus, your old sin um, is dead. Your old self is dead, and now you're alive in Jesus. Um, and so you're, you are now hidden in Jesus' love, perfection, and goodness, right? So um, in our verses for tonight, Paul introduces the idea. He builds off that. He introduces the idea of mortification, when he says put to death in verse 5, Paul is urging us to kill the desires of our sinful flesh. Now, remember, Paul just got done saying, if you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. And this is essentially another way to put it, to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh or put, um, put to death these um, elemental or these earthly passions. So two major things happen when you accept Jesus, when you accept him as Lord. Number one, you're justified. So we are all guilty. We've all fallen short. We're not perfect. Therefore, we deserve punishment. And when we accept Jesus, we get his righteousness, his perfection. So um, the, the payment for our sin is fully paid. We um, now are beloved forevermore. Our sin cannot separate us from God eternally because we're in Jesus. The second thing that happens is that you begin a process called sanctification. Um, sanctification is the process in which God renews you and makes you more like him. Sanctification is realizing more and more that you are a new creation and living from that truth. Scripture shows um, this tension between your spirit and your flesh. It shows the distinction between things above and things below and um, the tension between um, things that are eternal and things that are temporary or earthly. Um, Yes, we are raised with Christ, but sometimes we fix our eyes on things of the earth, right? We value them more important than Jesus, sometimes. Now, when Paul is speaking to us in these verses in 5 through 11, he's talking primarily to the sanctification process. He's not questioning justification. He's not questioning, are you going to be in heaven? He's questioning, if you are justified, it should look differently in your life. If you are living in sin, you're not living out of the reality that Jesus has actually redeemed you. 
So in verse 5, um, Paul tell, is telling us to remember that we don't live for earthly things. He goes on to list five um, sexual sins, and then later on in verse 8, he lists five social sins. So we'll first start with the fun topic of sex. I know you guys are excited. Thank you. All right. So sexual immorality would be the first one we start with. This is speaking to any sexual or lustful um, intercourse outside of marriage. One of the big misconceptions that I think a lot of Christians today have is that sex is bad. That's not true. That's not true at all. Um, Sex is actually a good thing. Um, uh, God made sex. He's for sex. And there's a book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. And it's literally a book just kind of devoted to to expressing um, some of the beauty and interactions of a married couple. Um, of sex. And so you probably don't want to read that to your kids when you have kids before bed. It kind of mess with them. Anyways, um, so God made sex, right? We'll say that. Um, but he made it within the context of marriage to be shared between a man and a woman. Um, and I know our culture says that sex is purely physical, right? Like it's just between a, a guy and a girl, like not a big deal. Like we just go do it. It's fun. That's it. Um, but it's not. It's not just physical. It's actually the most intimate, uh, or it's one of the most, if not the most intimate ways um, that you can actually relate with somebody. Um, I think we fall into sexual sin because we think it's actually better outside of marriage than inside of marriage. Um, We want it now, but I promise you, you're selling out for a cheaper experience compared to the deep and personal joy that sex is when shared between a husband and a wife. Um, There is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no um, a waking up and thinking, what did I do? What did I do this? There's just pure joy, right? There's, there's no impressing. There's no, I need to do this. There's just pure trust. It's, it's beautiful. Um, my wife and I, we dated for a year, um, and then we got engaged, and we were engaged for about a year, and this was really hard. Like, I know it. I know it's really hard. We, we, um, we, we set boundaries, and then we kind of um, would bend the boundaries a little bit to kind of, like, appease some things, and then we started to fail a little bit, and we're like, man, what do we do? And, and as we failed um, more and more, we thought, we just got to stop kissing, like, all together. And so for the last nine months of our engagement, my wife and I didn't kiss, um, and then when we were, when we got married, the first time I kissed her was amazing, right? Like when um, Pastor Chris said, you may not kiss your bride, I was so excited. It was so new, so fresh, so good. Um, and, and, and basically, we, we chose in this moment that we value Jesus more and actually believe that those expectations or those experiences that we wanted so badly now would actually be better if we waited until marriage, um, so it's not like God's not just saying, hey, give up the idea of sex now. Um, just, just, it's done. It's not good. He's actually saying it is good. Don't sell out now because it's, I'm actually wanting you to experience a better experience later. Friends, I know this is hard, and I'm with you on this struggle. Um, but believe that Jesus is better and wait. The next one is impurity. Um, Now, impurity means to be stained or corrupted. Um, We've heard of impure motives, and if you have mostly pure motives, but even one impure motive, you therefore have impure motives. Um, There is an invading impurity in our view of God and sexuality. Um, One of the primary instances for this is pornography. I've heard guys tell me that they just want to look at porn to understand how to have sex. But that's the worst way to learn about sex. Very often in pornography, women are mistreated um, wildly and often abused. You think that your wife wants to be treated like that? No. That is not the way to learn about sex. 
And I've had conversations with men that try to justify looking at porn. They're like, man, it's just between me. I mean, it's just me and the screen. That's it. Um, at least I'm not doing it with anybody else. Um, well, you're training your mind to view men and women as the objects of your pleasure at their expense. If you're addicted to porn, you don't see a girl on the street and think, I wonder if she knows Jesus. You think, that could be my, my possible sexual partner. This is a problem for women as well. And it's growing fast. Statistics show that an addiction to porn is equally as hard um, to counter or to, to relieve yourself from than addiction to cocaine. Today, the porn industry makes more money per year than the, uh, than the National Football League, the MLB, and the NBA combined. All of them combined. This is a worldwide impurity and corruption of the gift of sex. We have taken sex and made it cheap, made it accessible 24-7 and forgot the goodness of God. See, the problem with sex, hear me when I say this, is not that we think too much about sex, is that we think too little of it. The problem with sex in our culture is not that we think too much about sex, but that we think too little of sex. We make it common and cheap. We must pray for pure minds in this regard. We must put these impure thoughts to death and see our brothers and sisters as image bearers and children of God. Next word, passion. See, passion isn't a bad thing. Um, We should certainly be passionate, but what Paul is addressing here is that our passion, um, we're more passionate about things of the world than things that are eternal. We often grow apathetic and uninterested in the things of God. We value earthly small pleasures more than the eternal great pleasures. In an instant, we would actually forget about Jesus and our faith and give in to sexual sin. Maybe for you it's a porn addiction. Maybe for you it's um, interactions with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Um, or maybe it's just an impure thought about another person. But in that moment, we are more passionate about sin than Jesus. Next one, evil desire. This is a huge one. It's very, very sneaky. Um, and it plays into the idea of a corrupted view of sex. We love the sinful. We love pushing boundaries. If we're told that we can't do something, we want to do it that much more. This is evil desire. We might not say it with our words, but we certainly act that way. The last word is covetousness. Now, um, do not covet is the 10th commandment in the 10 commandments. And it's basically uh, the idea of wanting more and more so that we become happy. We functionally believe that lie that if we could just have one more thing, then we'd finally be happy, right? Oh, if I could just have this one thing, just pass this class, just finally get out of debt, just finally graduate, I'll be happy. Um, If you're single, you've probably struggled with coveting um, the idea of having the perfect girlfriend or boyfriend. If you are dating, you've probably coveted the idea of uh, finally being able to have sex or finally being married or finally something. If you are um, married, then you're probably coveting the idea of owning a home or having a baby or having the sweet little puppy that runs around all the time you get to take pictures with, right? Like we covet these things, think if I just had this one thing, I'll finally be happy. The list goes on and on, um, but here's how it plays out in sexual sin, People that have struggled with porn in the room, I'm assuming that your first encounter was just a picture. And the picture was new, and it was exciting and fun. And then it kind of 
just faded, right? It's not that exciting anymore. So you thought, well, I'll look at a video next. And so you look at videos, and videos are fun and exciting. And then, um, then you start to search for more videos and deeper videos, and they're more abstract. And then videos actually don't suffice anymore. And you think, I need more, so I want to do it with a person. And you find a person, and then it goes on and on and on and never fades. And you do it with one person. You want to do it with many people. Then you want to do it all the time, and it perverts our minds when we fall into the sin of coveting especially with sex. In marriage, this is absolutely poison. Coveting sex in marriage is to grow bored with sex with your spouse and look elsewhere to satisfy whatever needs you think you want to fill. It's adultery. Friends, some of you have never even seen a rated R movie Maybe you never even kissed a person or never really thought that you've struggled with this, but I can assure you that there is a common struggle amongst all of us with sexual sin. Maybe it doesn't look like the porn addiction. Maybe it just looks like a thought of impurity or coveting. I just want that guy's affirmation, that kiss. We must fight to put to death what is earthly in us. It isn't a joke. It isn't just between you and your screen. It isn't just between you and your girlfriend. If you're walking in sexual sin, it will eventually manifest into things much worse than it is now. Before we take a breath, Paul says in verse 6 that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's a deep punishment for our sexual sin. For my brothers and sisters in the room that have been sexually assaulted, pressured, or abused, there will be justice. That sin will be paid. God is the father to the brokenhearted. He's a just God and will repay sin. And so I'm sorry. If you've been the unfortunate recipient of sexual sin, I'm sorry. Men and women, this is serious. The child rapist and sex traffickers in the world didn't start with raping children or trafficking, enslaving people in sex. They started with an impure motive and let culture, uh, the view of sex run rampant in their minds. They started with porn and never thought they'd end up like this, and now they're here. God is urging you um, to put those desires to death. Now, Paul follows that verse about God's wrath with verse 7, um, saying, um, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Hear me say this. The gospel is extremely beautiful and scandalous. He lists these horrible sins sexually. And then he says that God's wrath will come on behalf of these things. And then he says, you fell into them. You were slaves to these things. But then a couple verses later says that you are hidden in Christ. The gospel is beautiful because he says the very sins that he lists off, he says that you fell into them, but God's wrath was poured on Jesus, and now you get goodness and righteousness. You were a slave to those things, but God has freed you. He became Jesus on the cross, took that wrath that was rightfully yours so that you might receive righteousness and goodness. For your sexual sin, if you are a Christian, there is no more shame. There is no more guilt. There is no punishment. There is no wrath. It was poured out on Jesus' shoulders. So if you consider yourself a Christian and you continue to fall into sexual sin, why? 
Jesus knew every sin that you could commit for the rest of your life. He knew those nights you'd stay up and the things you would look at, the things you would think about. He knew those interactions where you would become more passionate about things of the earth and less passionate about him, and he still died for it. So why, if you knew that Jesus took on the wrath that was supposed to be yours, would you continue in that? We don't look into the face of forgiveness and say, I'm just going to keep on sinning. We say, you're a good father, and I want to follow you with all I've got. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rejoice and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Don't look back to the old ways of your sin. Now, you might be wondering how to do this, right? This is pretty heavy. Um, In Colossians 6, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. You don't, you don't want to know what that looks like to flee. My friend in college was making out with his girlfriend in her car, and uh, he got convicted that this was going too far. He literally stopped, opened the door, and ran away. Like, he ran. Like, he just went. I love that. He took it, he took it seriously, right? Uh, my other friend um, took this verse seriously, was struggling with porn, opened up his window, and threw it out in his dorm room, six, six stories. Done. No, he's not looking at porn anymore, right? Um, I have friends um, today that um, have accountability software on their computers that sends me, and on their phones, that sends me um, emails every single week telling me what they looked at, if there's anything appropriate. Every week. It takes work to kill your sinful habits, but I promise you it's worth it. Paul then transitions from sexual sin to social sin. Can we just take a deep breath for a second? That's heavy, right? But it's good. So he moves from sexual sin to social sin. He moves um, to more horizontal interactions and examples of God in our lives and what we look like as far as sanctification. Um, He says, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. If you thought you were doing pretty well sexually... Um, you've got to be convicted on something socially, right? Like there's, like you're not clean, you're not, you're not batting a thousand on all of these. And so I'm just going to quickly explain them. Anger is sudden outbursts. Um, if your anger is uncontrolled and you find yourself just flying off the handle, um, I think you struggle with anger. And God is asking you, would you put that away and actually find peace? Um, wrath. Uh, the next one is connected to God's judgment on sin. So this is where we want to play the role of God. We, um, we think, uh, that girl drinks every single weekend. I can't believe that. Did she even read Ephesians 5, 18? Does she know that verse? Do you not get drunk with wine? Like we, we're like, oh man, I hope she gets what's coming to her. She's sinning. I'm probably got to call it out. Probably got to tell. We, we put ourselves in um, the role of God and give out judgment as if it was ours to give. Malice. Malice is ill will towards someone, um, often wanting to injure or get revenge. So I can't, I can't believe my girlfriend broke up with me because she said God wants me to be single. Then two weeks later, she's dating a guy. I hope he breaks up with her or she breaks up with him or whatever. Um, or, or girls, I can't believe my boyfriend cheated on me. He's got that new girlfriend. I hope she cheats on him. I hope that happens, right? Like this is, I know this is sin, right? But it's what happens in our hearts. I know it does. We think that person wronged me. I hope that they get coming to him, them. I hope they get that. I hope they get hurt because they hurt me. This is the opposite of love. Slander. This is a big one, even within this room right now. How many of you vent? Yep. Okay. 
Have you ever vented about a roommate? Ooh, we might be guilty of slander. Slander is, didn't think that'd go over so well, but it did. Slander is, is, um, is talking um, badly about somebody or attacking his or her character. Okay? It's talking bad about somebody about, or attacking the character. So we preface these statements with, I love her, but just she doesn't understand my name was on the milk and she just drank it. Do you understand? Right? Like, or he's a great guy. Like, I love that dude, but then it goes on. Um, these are all just disguises to say something negative about somebody. But that isn't Christ-like love. It's expressing your anger towards someone rather than bringing it up to them. It's gossip. And it's dangerous. It's a sin, right? We don't want to fall into that. We're not building that person up. But I think there's a right way to bring these things up. I think if, if you have a problem with something, I think you go to them and express, hey, this is kind of what I'm battling with. This is kind of what I'm thinking about. What, what do you think? I just want to be honest about my anger. Or if you're talking to other people, um, is it genuine love for that person? Is it a genuine affection? Like, I actually want to walk with them and, and see them through it. If you're complaining about someone and have no intention on telling them or patiently walking with them through that, it's slander and you're forgetting the way God defines that person. The next word is obscene talk. I really find myself struggling with this one, oddly enough. I don't really cuss or say any bad words or whatever, um, but I do find myself saying jokes about people I don't know just based off of exterior things. I find myself judging people and making um, jokes. Um, now, it, this, is, um, this is invasive because it's still, again, questioning that person's identity or their goodness or their value. We can judge off of exterior. We're saying this person's not an image of God. They're an image that I can just make fun of. Um, this includes crude humor, foul words, or obscene gestures. Now, later in Colossians 4, um, verse 6, Paul writes, Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. It might be a good habit, friends, to ask yourself, is your speech gracious before saying most things you say? And lastly, Paul says, don't lie. This is a good one, and this is a really hard one. Lying is anything short of the absolute truth. Um, I find it really easy. I don't know if you're with me. I find it really easy to tell most of the truth or add a little bit to the truth. Right? Leave a little bit out or add a little bit to it. Um, but this proves that there's an insecurity in our hearts, that we need others to believe a lie about us so that we'd be loved. If someone, this is what we think, if someone really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. It's a lie that we believe, and I think we lie because we, we are believing that lie. Right? This is going on Twitter. But God knows everything about us and still loves us we don't have to hide behind a lie because we're hidden in the truth of Christ. Preach. Maybe get an amen for that. Uh, we don't have to hide behind a lie because we are hidden in the truth of Christ. Now, if you've listened to what I've said so far and don't think you fall into any of these sins, I think you're lying to yourself. See, for the Christian, we need to be aware of how we're living like our old selves. We need someone to ask us, is it dead yet? 
We need to ask those hard questions and dig deeper into our lives to see if we're actually living like new creations. See, the rat was dead. When it twitched, it wasn't alive. It was just a reflex. And when we fall back into sin, we are still dead to that sin, but sometimes we twitch like our old selves. Our old self is alive, but it's not. Right, those twitching, those falling back into these old habits, it's not that we're actually, our old self is alive, it's still dead. We just gotta remember that. So Paul finishes the passage, if you can follow along with me in verses 10 and 11, he says, um, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all. And in all, he is using the imagery of um, taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. This is a theme in the Bible that when someone's um, status changes, their clothes change too. There's this beautiful story in Zechariah 3. It's in the Old Testament. And, and it starts with Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And, and Satan is there, and he's um, accusing him and slandering him. And then as Joshua is standing there, an angel says that he's um, in filthy garments. He's dressed disgusting. He's got all this filth on him and this sin and this dirt. And I love this. The angel says, behold... I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe clothe you with pure vestments. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, and you feel burdened by the filthiness of your sin, Jesus is assuring you that you don't have to wear that anymore. He is willing to take your filth, your filthy sin, your filthy garments, and give you his glory, his goodness, and his righteousness. And for the Christian in the room, I think you need to remember what you used to wear before Christ gave you his righteousness. You were in filthy rags. You were dead. And he took them upon himself to give you clothes of glory. Are you still putting on those filthy clothes? Or are you living in the reality that you are a new creation? Are you believing that you're really dead to sin? To conclude this passage, Paul said there is no distinction between anyone that has accepted Christ. He says Christ is all and in all. So Paul is reminding us that we are not primarily defined by our race, our religious background, our culture, or our social rank. He's reminding you tonight that you're not your old self that you're a new creation made after the image of your creator. He's reminding you tonight, friends, that he loves you, that he cares for you. He's reminding you that when you fall back into the sinful habits, that your old self is still dead. He's reminding you tonight that your brothers and sisters in faith will never be defined by their old filthy clothes because they are wrapped in the perfection of Jesus. If you are in Christ, he defines you and defines the person right next to you. We must fight to remember that we are dead to sin because Christ died for our sin. Now, I'm going to pray, um, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a few more songs. But if you want prayer, if you feel burdened by this, if you feel convicted by this, which I hope you do feel convicted, um, 
or you're struggling with something or you want to put to death these things and you feel like you want prayer, um, there's going to be people, leaders in our staff team in the back to pray with you. Please don't be too proud to walk back there and ask for prayer. If you need help to fight your sin, invite others into that. If you need help to remember who you are in Christ, let us help you remember. And if you want to give your filthy clothes to Jesus for the first time tonight and receive his perfect covering over you, we'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you so much. You too once walked in these ways. God, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, of your majesty. I have fallen short so many times. And God, yet you still remind me that you love me, that you care for me, that I'm a new creation. And so I pray I can maybe communicate um, some ideas or teach some thoughts, God, but only you can bring conviction upon hearts. Only you can convict hearts and actually change them, not to just feel bad about their sins, but to actually realize that there's a great forgiver and your name is Jesus. And so, God, I pray over this room right now, over my friends in this room, would you do a work in their hearts? Would you soften our hearts to actually believe that you're a good God and that you want to take our filthy rags and give us new clean clothes? Or would we believe if we're Christians, God, if we've accepted you, that we're not our old self anymore, that our old self is dead and we should live for our new self. So Jesus, be in this room. Spirit, soften hearts. Father, you're so good to us. We, we repent of our sin and we, we, uh, we pray that you would help us put to death the deeds of the flesh and follow you more fully. Would we find our joy, our peace, our love, everything, our satisfaction in you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your precious name. Amen.